0: You're about to join Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing, and learn about the most dependable and consistent, yet often overlooked, investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series.
1: Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we give you a raw and honest account of what it's like to be a rules-based investor what news and articles caught our attention, and of course, where we also attempt to answer your questions. As usual, let me start by saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. Hello, guys. How are
2: you doing? Great. Good morning, good afternoon.
1: Yeah, doing great. Um, For me, this uh, 13th of October is actually quite a special day because it's the quote-unquote anniversary of my son surviving a sudden cardiac arrest a number of years ago. So it's always a very special day to wake up to. Um, So, uh, uh, yeah, an important landmark. But that is not what we're here to talk about right now. We are, of course, here to um, review some of the events uh, during this week. uh, and, um, And then we'll see how that all panned out for... The different ways we do trend following among ourselves, and of course, uh, this week was—how um, should I put it—a little bit of a different week because suddenly we had quite a lot of optimism over here in Europe, uh, uh, you know, pertaining a possible Brexit deal. Suddenly, I know stateside, uh, Thursday, Friday, talks about a at least a phase one trade deal with China. Uh, certainly, also lifted. Uh, some of the more kind of risk on um, assets, um, but also meant that a lot of the risk off uh, asset classes were uh, there was a lot of pressure on those in particular bonds um, and I think gold as well. Uh, and of course, as we know, um, that's uh, not always uh, in the direction of the trend and the positions that we as, as managers have on right now. So I'm sure there was a little bit of pain there. Um, and and actually as, a, as of Thursday evening which is quite interesting because we've had somewhat of a challenge in uh, September and, and, and early uh, October and when I look at my own trend barometer that I calculate every day I saw the lowest reading uh, that I can remember um, and this is going back at least five years now uh, as of Thursday night so, so really bad environment from an objective point of view in terms of markets that are in some kind of uh, trending behavior. Um, of course, this is not unusual uh, when we see some kind of transition period uh, for uh, for the markets. Um, and as we also uh, know from history, at least, it's usually not a um, bad time to, um, to get interested uh, in these uh, strategies if you're not already invested or if you're looking to Add a little bit more. And of course, I couldn't help uh, as a final little thing, nothing to do with trend following, of course, but uh, I couldn't help notice that things really have changed in the last uh, sort of uh, eight, nine years or so because uh, actually the Republic of Greece over here in Europe managed to sell some um, three month bills, I think it was this week, at a negative interest rate. And of course, many of you will remember that they needed three bailouts from. The IMF and the eurozone, uh, are you know, at least since 2010. But now they're apparently able to sell us negative yielding bills. So markets change; uh, everything changes over time. Um, but um, with all of that in mind, Moritz, um, interesting to hear what, how your week panned out, so to speak. Yeah, good summary. Um, my week was down. I don't want to say it's been a
3: bad week because as we know, you know, being down is part of the process and it's just part of the game. Um, but I think, you know, Monday, Tuesday were kind of kind of okay. And then um, Wednesday, I don't even remember that much, but Thursday and Friday, just, uh, just the bonds moved the, the wrong way. Uh, they went down and, and that cost most of the losses for this week. Um, I lost 3% um and really most of that is from the bonds i remember the emissions contract the emissions contract which i'm long since really a long long time um is moving lower um or has been moving lower at the beginning of the week probably to do with fears of brexit and then that got you know a bit a bit softer so it came back up um I don't know. It's 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 been it's been kind of like a little bit of a roller coaster this uh this past week, but you know, 3%
1: down. It's it is what it is. And uh I don't know, this is just a guess. You say you don't remember Wednesday, but that had maybe something to do with Oktoberfest in Munich. I don't know.
3: Oh, that's 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 uh, yesterday's news. Oktoberfest's over, so uh, we're all sober again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and uh and show up at work on time and, you know, nobody's sleeping in and hungover. So, uh, <laughs> you know, another year to wait for that. But uh, Okay, cool. Cool, cool, yeah. cool.
1: So, um, yeah, we probably had a little bit of a, a worse week than than, than yours. But, uh, you know, months to date, it's not too bad. Um, but we certainly, because we, we have been um, pretty long the fixed income market. So, unsurprisingly, um, it, it took its toll, uh, especially Thursday, Friday, as you said, it intensified a bit as the news were starting to um, spread through the the markets uh you know long gills um meaning bonds in the uh in the uk were, were certainly the single biggest losing position we had um given this optimism after the meeting between the uk and irish prime ministers so uh, so yeah a bit of a rough uh, period uh last week uh, rest of the portfolio, we saw some losses in grains. I think there were also news, not only about China and the U.S., but also maybe I think about Japan buying more grains from the U.S. So um, so that gave a, a, a lift in prices, uh, which is against uh, our positioning right now. Uh, and gold uh, didn't seem like a lot of people needed a safe haven uh, towards the end of the week. Uh, so that sold off. Um, and uh, so that hurt a little bit. Uh, And, of course, the British pound uh, suddenly found some strength. So uh, that also was a bit of a a challenge uh, to our positions. Um, We did see some gains. I mean, uh, softs, uh, coffee, sugar... Uh, and equities. I mean, I'm sure uh, Jerry has something to say about that as well. But equities were uh, were decent, and um, you know, uh, we're certainly uh, long for the most part uh, in in equities. Uh, I think also Mexican peso did okay for us. But that's you know, so certainly a negative week, a uh, bit of a negative start to the uh, to the month. Um, but as I said, you know, transition period, um, perhaps. Maybe just a correction. Maybe we start focusing on, on the real problems in the uh, economies again, um, and and it'll all um, return to where it came from, like we saw with uh, the energy after Saudi Arabia. But
2: time will tell. How about you, Jerry? How was how was your week? Uh, all the same as experienced with that. You guys experienced uh, dollar weakness and uh, <clears throat> that hurt us. Uh, not as much in the bonds, but uh, we don't have those big profits either. And then, you know, of the 35 stocks, uh, some went up and made new highs. So um, a lot of diversification there. Yeah, well, diversification
1: certainly is and continues to be super important. Um, so, um, all right, well, let's uh, let's move on and see if there were some interesting articles, interesting topics, uh, anything that... Um, kind of uh, the, the fin Tweet uh, community picked up, liked, uh, or disagreed with, who knows. Um, what, um, I guess to both of you, what did you um, have most uh, attention or
2: eyeballs on this week? I think there's a lot of interest in uh, Larry Height's new book. Yeah. So that uh, got a lot of interest from my followers let if I can find it.
1: I actually saw a tweet uh, that maybe it was something you liked or maybe you quoted Moritz uh, from Larry's book. Um, and it's something along the line, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but something like along the lines that trend following, is, there's no magic in trend following, but what it does is magical or something like that. And I actually thought that was really nicely That's exactly right. Put. That's uh, that's almost spot on.
3: Yeah. I just love that quote because, you know, I never thought about it that way. It's kind of like such a short quote, but so good. Uh, you know, like two sentences or, or not even two sentences and it's spot on. Yeah. So, I mean, like we all know, I mean, there isn't too much magic about what it is that we do. It's fairly understandable. Um, you can explain it to people. and uh, But the results is, uh, you know, follow the price, follow
1: the trend. And it's just great. So I, I just love that quote. Yeah, plus you can interpret it in, in many ways, right? You could look at it as a standalone, but you could also think about kind of the magical impact it has on a wider portfolio if you uh, put it in together with stocks and bonds and, and all of that. I just thought it was just brilliant, so I'm yeah. glad you... Uh, so do I. And, you know,
3: also the, like, you know, not looking at fundamentals, not really caring about, you know, whether a business is producing a great balance sheet or whether it is in the news and, you know, this and that and the other thing, uh, it's just so great and you know that that's part of the magic that you know if you just look at the price follow its trend you don't really care about what that business is doing in the inside it just works it just works
2: yeah absolutely yeah that was one of my uh, favorite uh, i retweeted that uh for moritz and i just know that i have that book and i have it in electronic form and i will be reading it and uh, as i read it i'll be tweeting uh great quotes like that that he just has that ability to, you know, fire me up and help me see things in a sometimes a more complex and sometimes more simple light. Yeah, keeping it real
1: and keeping it simple. Uh, I think that's uh, he's got a great ability to uh, to do just that.
2: So this is uh, from an article that I think he's been doing a lot of our, uh, interviews about his book. So this was my most favorited tweet all week. Once again, it's. Uh, pretty, pretty normal for us. Height's uh, approach is the opposite of the ones used by more traditional investors. To others, losing trades quickly become investments. And winning trades get cut short as eager investors scoop up profits. Height is swimming in the opposite direction. So, yeah. You know, this is uh, a concept I like to talk about a lot, which is uh, everyone, including investors, need to take small losses and not let the losses get out of control and not have it switch categories uh, from a good position to an investment that you're willing to hold because it's at a loss and you're too embarrassed to get out of it. And uh, there's nothing more important, uh, part two, of not cutting your profits short. And I know it's really hard to sit through these sell-offs with nice profits and see some of the profit go away, but some of these trends will last two or three years. And we just don't really know, except in hindsight, if gold's going to keep going or if the bonds are going to turn around. And uh, so it's, it's really big money, and the, uh, it takes a s- strong will to follow these systems, which probably are going to be more longer term, because the data and the back test is going to show that, yeah, hold on to these things as long as you can, maybe a year or two, and try not to get too uptight about the profits. There was one article that uh, someone... Uh, One tweet that someone put out there that Larry talks about a trade, and he was making so much money, he just kept making money, and people were encouraging him to get out, and he he just wouldn't get out until he made like I think the max profit was 15 million, and then he ended up making 12 million, and uh, he makes this quote in there where he says, "My broker uh, could not handle all of this," (laughs) so it wasn't even Larry who was freaking out about these big profits; it was his broker who was getting uptight about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, when when you think about this, and of course he started way back in, in the '70s, uh, where there weren't a lot of people uh, that he could look to for inspiration of uh, in terms of doing these things, uh, it it really takes someone real special to um, to have that focus and and to be um, yeah just just uh, laser disciplined. Uh, and 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 to stick with these things i mean i think nowadays there's a lot more that's been written there's a lot more evidence uh around it even though there probably are still you know a lot of people who uh who d- would disagree with with the uh, premise of the strategy but uh but back then um i think he he mentioned that there were like five or six of them doing it you know, back then, you know, Keith Campbell, Bill Don and a few other people. And, and uh, so there weren't that much inspiration to to look at. And uh, so I think, you know, when you take it into that context, um, you know, what he did and, and how he um, laid the foundation uh, of a great career is, is just, uh, you know, incredibly admirable.
2: I know, I talk about, uh, you know, the turtle years and the trading, but uh, it was so important to have the backup, you know, the mentors and the people telling you, oh, you're... Losing money or taking a lot of small losses and your profits your big profits are turning into small profits and to say that's okay Keep going and no one was telling these guys. They were just uh, picking it up on their own and seemingly doing the right thing and uh, Being very vocal about it, you know, and very intense about it and not uh, not backing down. So uh, pretty impressive yeah,
1: and it's, it's interesting you mention that, because that's one of the takeaways that I took uh, from our conversation when we had Rich uh, Dennis on um, a, a while back. Um, when I think back about sort of key takeaways, and, and I often get asked about this, uh, I, I, and I think about, well, about you, Jerry, I, I think about how often you mention the importance of that mentorship and just being put in that environment from, from the get-go, um, and how that is probably impossible today to be allowed that kind of um yeah training and and stewardship um anywhere, so
2: yeah, and the bottom line was uh do the right thing, do the trade, follow the system, and losing money uh while you're while you're following the system is fine, and no one's gonna really tell you that these days, certainly not clients, and then uh the you know the pressure is so great. Uh, in all situations that, you know, uh, long-term underperformance or no performance or negative performances, it, it's, it would be tough to find a situation where that would be tolerated. And uh, everything that, every as long as you're doing the right, syst- the trades and following the system, everything will be great. and You'll be celebrated. I mean, who talks like that? No one. <laughs> and it's especially That's, like, you know, if you're trading at a
3: higher level of vol, which I think, you know, Larry Hyde has been doing. He's one of the guys that, you know, became wealthy. Uh, trading trading his money. So, you know, you need to have a mentor. A mentor, I think, is even more important when you're trading at a level of volatility, as Larry did, that, you know, takes your account down 50% or more. If you're trading at 5 vol, then that is so much easier to stomach and maybe you can just hang on to the thing for a couple of years and, and not get too nervous about it. But if, you're, if you really want to make larger amounts of money, then you will have that risk and those drawdowns and they will throw you throw you some curveballs. And that's when you need the support and, uh, you know, to, to to stay on track. Indeed. What
1: else? More from Larry or more from other sources of inspiration this week, Jerry?
2: Other sources as well. Um, I think it's good to review some of the things we've talked about before. Uh, it was a pretty nice article from Larry Swedrow talking about how the standard timeframes for evaluating performance for investment managers are insufficient to evaluate the skill of a manager with any degree of confidence. 10 years can be nothing more than noise, a random outcome. Funds that have long periods of outperformance can ultimately underperform. The average period of outperformance by the funds that ultimately underperformed was 11 to 12 years. So we've talked about this, and then just a slight twist on it was uh, previously we had I had read where studies had showed that it was a requirement for under, of underperformance for long periods of time in order to have uh, <clears throat> better performance in the long run. so that is uh, quite a kick in the ass to sort of set your computer up to say, uh, computer, please show me systems that perform great over time, over a 20-year, 30-year period, but have long periods. It seems to be a characteristic and a need. I need a systematic approach that has long periods of underperformance. You know, no one wants to do that, and hopefully it's <clears throat> not something that um, would continue to be a requirement, but it seems to be so. Well, we certainly know from people like uh, Warren
1: Buffett that that's certainly been his profile. Uh, He can have several years of significant underperformance, but he's still overall done amazingly well. Um, I think the problem today uh, and the mentality today of many investors, and I don't know whether it's just the institutionalization of of all things being you know all things finance is that nobody wants any performance that is either too good or too bad i mean we just want average everything just close to average don't be different in any way shape or form and that's the challenge um let alone obviously underperformance in order to create outperformance but but i i just find that everybody you know are t- scared of being different from the next guy or from the index that they're being measured against and you know, which again comes back to this point about you know um we don't really want to take risk anymore, and so how can we expect to make any real returns if 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 we're so risk averse what are your thoughts morris yeah, I agree although you know I'd love like you say you know
3: I'd love to be the guy with the great returns I don't want to be average, but you know I just know that the pitfalls in designing those systems is uh potentially catastrophe, so uh I'm happy with uh with the rough, the rough patch, uh, but with the survival for the long run.
2: Yeah, I think with the with our approach with the systems and with uh, all the different markets, uh, currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, long and shorts, we. I think we will get back to a situation where we were very consistent over a annual basis, where we almost always made money, and I think uh, our strategy puts. Uh, Puts us in a higher likelihood where that would be the case. And the ups and downs and the profit gives backs and the drawdowns can be totally forgotten by the time December rolls around. And, you know, we're showing somewhat of a positive return. <clears throat> uh, but there just doesn't seem to be much of an appetite these days for, with the ze- pretty much zero to negative rates of 20 and 30% returns and uh, the accompanying drawdowns. And with this, look back periods that I have chosen, and I sort of feel I have to trade in order to be profitable, those uh, drawdowns would be fairly significant the more I increase my leverage to achieve a 20 or 30% return. So, it's I don't know a way out of it. <clears throat> Shorter-term systems that I used to trade many, many years ago um, with a lot of leverage those systems don't work anymore, according to me, you know, my experience. So, I don't think I have much of a choice. And uh, I mean, we see other friends and traders that we see their performance, um, and it can get, you know, plus 30, and then next month, minus 20-something. So, that doesn't seem to be very fun, nor very, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm not sure how many clients I could get like that in this day and age.
1: No, I mean there's that. I mean there's the whole um, issue about uh, volatility in the returns. I think that's a that's a very important point um, where clearly people don't want that kind of uh, profile at the moment. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's just you know a, a result of the fact that interest rates are so low. So you don't have to shoot for much in order to outperform the alternative, so to speak, or the traditional. Um, but on the other side, it, it's a side. It seems like now uh, there's a lot of focus on oh, but you have to make money in 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 the month or even the weeks or the even the days where equities are down. So you're just putting more and more restrictions on 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 the return profile, and it becomes unrealistic. I mean, yes, you can you can do things like that, but then you just lose out uh, somewhere else, which is usually the long term performance. We I think we talked about that last week. We did the analysis. So are some of these um, you know strategies where clearly you could have made money in February of 2018 or you could have made money in Q4 of 2018 yes that you can design systems like that but you lose out on the long term and uh, and I don't know that investors are prepared to do that either so so the the uh, the wish list for what our systems are meant to do is becoming longer and longer and I just don't think you can tick all the boxes you have to just believe and be have conviction in, in the strategy that um, you know uh, we represent and, and, and acknowledge uh, and explain and make clear that it comes with certain drawbacks. Um, but in the long term, it's very hard to beat. Well, and the person that
3: can tick all the boxes, probably the closest to that is Jim Simons. He's not open for investments. So there you have it, right? If, if you're the guy, if you're so clever that you can tick all the boxes,
1: then uh, why share that? You know, wisdom and that IP with anybody else. Just trade your own money. But that's one box he doesn't take, Moritz, which is the other one that investors want. They don't want to pay for this, right? So he doesn't take that with his five and forty-six uh, yeah. fee structure. So uh, you know, I know, I, I know what you're saying. He's close yeah. at ticking all the boxes, but Ex- exactly, but not that one.
3: Look, I think you know, you can design uh, strategies or you can think about strategies that will do well in periods of stress, like you know, the February 2018 or the fourth quarter of last year. And those strategies are or they tend to be long volatility, using options, buying options, paying premium, and they will if structured well, if done right, they will, you know, offer you that protection during those periods of time, but if the markets are calm, if they're mean reverting, if not much happens, they bleed, right? And and you're you're losing money. Then on the other hand, you can structure the things that on paper seem to work all of the time. But you put a lot of risk, like tons of risk, into parts of the distribution where it's difficult to see that risk or or to know whether it's there, and and the result may be ruin. And then there's our strategies, which you know, depending on how we're positioned, they may be doing well, but you know, they are rough, um, and you know, episodic in their returns. But they are in like everything that I've looked at, the most robust. Thing that I've ever come across, and I'm willing to trade that for the for the rough patch and the episodic return stream that you know comes with it.
1: Another legendary trend follower that doesn't get much uh, press, uh, but uh, probably should. But I think that's just a function of. Of the size of his uh, program, and that's uh, a a guy I interviewed a few years ago called Bill Dries, who I think started in 1976. So he's been around for quite a while, and uh, he was talking also about this point that yeah, you can divide or you can develop these strategies where essentially you're warehousing risk, right? You 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 you're picking up small pennies in front of a steam train. One day it's gonna catch you, and you're gonna be you know decimated to some extent. And, and he he um, he talked about trend followers as kind of the opposite where he's basically saying you know I, i'm taking on the risk and i'm doing that on an ongoing basis i'm realizing the risk uh and and we're recognizing it every day with our mark- to market uh you know uh, bookkeeping so it's just a complete opposite uh than than what um you know many investors are, are looking for but
2: it certainly doesn't uh, make it less uh, important. Wayne talks about that in his Twitter account quite often. That you're just—it's uh, <clears throat> really not returns that you're getting because you're going to have to pay them out yeah. at a later date. <clears throat> so yeah, that's quite uh, quite problematic. It's a good
1: way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, it's a good narrative. Um, if someone wants to listen, I think it's a. It's a good way of explaining the difference, right? Everybody loved long-term capital on, until they didn't. Um, and, and there are many examples uh, of this. And, okay, we haven't had many of them. Um, but, you know, the, the small small things, and this is obviously not uh, meant to be any form of of, of warning, but I, I the other thing I picked up this week in in um in the news flow it was something like that the, the largest hedge fund in south korea suddenly they have stopped uh, paying out uh, investor money i mean it's, it sound just it make me think back of the best earns warning sign uh, before the crisis even began suddenly you see places of illiquidity and places of you know unusual behavior um, in strategies that may have looked incredibly safe up until that point, uh, even though I have no idea what they do in this particular hedge fund in South Korea, but
2: I think it's uh, perfectly fine to give out a warning. And um, I wish I, I wish I would have the CTAs and myself were given out a warning at the end of two two thousand seven, because it's always you should always have a warning that uh, if you're not diversified, if you're not trading with stop losses, keeping your losses small and trading with the trend and being incredibly diversified, not just uh, long stocks, then uh, your portfolio needs a warning on it. it. needs to have that warning sticker all the time. Uh, and so um, we should not hesitate to, uh, even though it gets kind of old. And I was going to say about the previous conversation you guys were having is that uh, – <clears throat> You know, you're willing. Moritz is willing to stick with this type of uh, approach that has these ups and downs. And and what's the competition? You know, it's so low. It's worse. It's way worse. It's an eight percent return with over a fifty percent drawdown. And we're agonizing over. Well, I'm just going to suck it up and do it. So much better uh, than the alternative, or what most people would see as the alternative, or the core holdings that we all have to sort of see if we can fit in. It's so ridiculous. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, what we do is way better, way safer. And we kind of leverage it up a little bit, and it has some volatility, maybe more than the stocks, and it has worse returns in the stocks. So, to the outsider's eye, oh, it's, it's worse. It doesn't even make money, not nearly like the S&P does, and then it's more volatile. So, we get in this bind, and we get... Uh, Critiqued by those who don't know any better, or who are stock-centric, uh, more of a religious experience than a mathematical experience. Do you think deep down,
1: and this I guess goes to both of you. I mean, do you think deep down? So we know that equities can have, and probably has, on average, much bigger drawdowns than trend followers. So do you think deep down that the the challenge investors have with the um, uh, with the strategy um, is just the the profile, the 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 noise or the volatility, on an ongoing basis, uh, the fact that it's less stable because it's not much more that it is not. I'll try that again. It is not more risky. There's no evidence of it being more risky, but it is more noisy and it is, you know, it's less stable. If that's even something that can be described to a to a market profile.
3: Well, I'd say it's even more stable. So when I look at a very long term track record of a CTA, and I compare that to the S&P 500 then I can only see that it's a more stable return profile over time right it doesn't have the 2008 crash it doesn't have the euro crisis in there I mean it it is a more stable thing my and and this may this may just be my personal opinion but my hunch is that investors don't like the fact that when we present to them that what we're doing is a trend-following system and that all we're doing essentially is follow trends, and by the way, it's so simple, they hate the fact that we don't have an opinion on things and that we cannot be sitting there and having an opinion on a company or a macroeconomic environment or whether Trump is going to be doing this, that, or the other thing or whether Brexit is going to happen or not, that we're just so boring and we're sitting in the meeting room with them and telling them i don't know 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 what's going to happen tomorrow next month you know any of that type of stuff i'm just there following trends and i believe that they simply hate it and they think we're kind of like nuts and not smart and not clever and 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 so they go to another fund who has a better story than we do but on the like if you're really objective and you look at just the the track records of CTAs like Dunn, like Chesapeake, for all those years. I mean, you gotta be kidding me. This is so much more stable than any of the other investments. And if you just look at that, you wanna say, well, you wanna scream, I want to invest. And it doesn't matter whether you want to invest, you know, at the low of that track record, just invest now. It's you know, it's the, the best indication that you have is to, you know, invest now and for the track record to continue in Pretty much the same fashion it has continued in the past, with its ups and downs. And of course, every once in a while, you need a very tough uh, uh, stomach lining, or you need to be thick-skinned. I mean, you've just mentioned Bill Dryce and you know, I I know a thing or two about about his firm. And you know, while you guys spoke, I looked up his returns and. He lost uh, about, I mean, this is public information, so people can look it up. He lost uh, 10% in 2017. Then he lost another 10 in 2018. Then the start of this year has been down. And then, boof, close to 30% up in August, 40% down in September. But still, year to date, he's up close to 35%. So, you know, um, he's, he's, he's making new highs um, and when you look at his track record, which is also a very long track record, right? It's volatile, but look, he's just made a new high. And uh, you know, when I when I compare this track record to the S and P, this is damn robust. Yes, it's up and down, but this thing is making a new high. And I, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think there's any reason to believe that he'll. Stop making you highs probably just you know go on like this you just have to you know
1: come on the ride and write the bucking bronco so there you go I mean uh, I'm sure Jared has some comments on this as well but the only thing I would change in what you just said Moritz because obviously I agree is that I wouldn't describe it as stable returns but I would say it's consistent our return profile is consistent it's really always been like this unlike many other asset classes where it looks stable suddenly it's not and therefore it's not consistent um but i think that that's a great uh, that's a great great point one thing that i also because we spoke and we've mentioned
3: larry height and uh, you know he's been on a couple of podcasts uh, this past week and the week before great guy and one analogy that he came up with is if you're offered a ride on a rocket ship you have to get on the rocket and, you know, I, I think this is so true. This is what we're doing with every single trade. You know, it's kind of like our option, our chance to get on the ride, to get on the rocket. We don't know where it's going. You know, it, it may be a failure, it may take us to the moon, but we have to take the rocket. And if you're given the opportunity, you have to do it. And the beauty about our systems is that, you know, we get so many opportunities. You know, there's an opportunity to go on a short rocket, on a long rocket, on a rocket in bonds, on a rocket in equities on so many different things. You know, some of them, most of them will fail, but some of them will take us to the moon. And it's, you know, it, it sounds so strange. And I think this is one of the things that investors don't like about that thing is, you know, it's so simple. And the story is kind of like missing about some fundamental thing, but that's what we're doing. We're taking one rocket after the other in the same way, expecting the same thing. <laughs> it
1: sounds weird. It is what it is. What are your thoughts, Jerry?
2: Oh, yeah, that, that was really good. I think I can remember my thoughts. Uh, one was I was just going to sort of tackle you like Moritz did and say it's not so much that they, that our performance uh, is not as good or not as stable or not as consistent. It hasn't been uh, recently, you know. But it is, in the long term, much, much better. And I think back to not having a story and uh, being so passionate about what we do. And uh, so I think, you know, I have to sort of call myself out because I've called this passive indexing sort of a religion. And I think once I start talking about trend following sometimes, it gets very uh, religious-sounding, you know, that no amount of evidence will sway me, uh, short-term evidence. And I'll just keep extending what I say is short-term uh, if, if necessary, I'm not going to back down. I'm going to advocate this and we just get in front of people and we think it sounds so great. Yeah. And, uh, are I think they're the, like, uh, you know, it just doesn't, you know, hit me like it's hitting you. And, uh, so I think that's, it's great to be passionate, but it's just a rare people who are going to want to embrace, uh, the ups and downs, uh, the math, I think the math turns a lot of people off as well. Can you just please talk about a story and about a company or a macro environment <clears throat> and politics or something versus expectation and drawdowns and um, following a systematic approach based on a large sample size? So this is just not... We think it sounds great in our head, but when it comes out, it, I, obviously I don't think it does. And, and and
1: the ironic thing is that I don't think our industry really is short of stories. I mean, we have real stories based on real experiments, based on, you know, with real performance to back them up. Um, a lot of the stories that, that we're saying that we're missing are, are people coming on to the news media talking about things that they think might happen uh, in the future based on, you know, some kind of subjective uh, analysis, really. So... But, but, you know, people want to be, I guess, deceived in some ways uh, and, uh, and want to believe these, uh, this kind of narrative and, uh, and, and predictions and the fact that we, you know, in a sense, are just very, being very transparent and being very honest, saying we have no idea what's going to happen. We can't predict what uh, the returns are going to be and where they're going to come from. Of course, it doesn't, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't sound very convincing or compelling for that matter. Go ahead, Terry.
2: Uh, well, I was just going to say that uh, human nature being what it is, they'll flock to us uh, the next time there's a problem with the equities, uh, like in 2008, but uh, that's just the way human nature is. They will all of a sudden get uh, get religion and, and understand trend following uh, <clears throat> exactly what it is and the benefits of it if the performance is different. So there's a, there's a lot of performance chasing and things like that. But let's uh, go to Wayne. He had a good tweet. And I had a follow-up that I was disappointed didn't get a lot more love. So what you guys think? Uh, Wayne goes, what really is a fat tale? Textbooks, academic papers offer a wide, fairly wide range of definitions with varying levels of mathematical rigor. Funny thing is, it's all just a complicated way of saying we have no effing idea what can happen. I like that. Things, bad things can happen. And we need to let people know that uh, we're concerned with those bad things and that uh, we do more than most to try to mitigate bad things with our systems and our rules and our diversification. <clears throat> so then I go on to say, what are the best ways, techniques, processes to protect your investment from the fat tails that will do harm and what are the ways to try to take advantage of the ones, the fat tails that can create mega profits? And I put in parentheses as if I didn't know, so I didn't get a lot of loves on that. Uh, like you know, it's it's what we do. It's, it's trend following. And uh, but oh well. I, I, it's kind of funny when you,
1: you when you when you uh, talked about it right there. I thought we, you know going back to this issue about what our industry has a as a narrative problem is that, I mean, we choose to talk about fat tails. Other people talk about, you know, how many iPhones can Apple sell next quarter, right? I mean, I know which one I would go for as well if I didn't know better.
3: Uh, Jerry, I just gave you love on that one. I overlooked it, so you have one more like. <laughs> um, well, I, I just agree. I mean, we have no uh, F-bomb word idea uh, what's going to happen tomorrow. And, well, of course, you know, statistically speaking, that shows up in the distribution as fat tales. But um, I agree with Wayne. There's there's no point speaking about this black swan or that black swan or what could happen then. We just don't know. And, uh, you know, it, it took me probably at the beginning some, some time to understand that, and now I'm completely at peace with that
1: of not knowing. Knowing what you don't know. Yep. Very important, which is what what which is what Larry Hyde told Alex Grazeman when he was interviewing, waiting for some kind of really insightful answer about why he should uh, join his firm and then and then there he goes, you know, knowing what you don't know, and he was kind of quite disappointed, I think at the time, at least that's what he told me some years back. Good stuff, good stuff, more good stuff from you, Jerry.
2: Let's do one more with Wayne uh we We're a theme here about risk and uh, how dangerous the world is, regardless of uh, recent performance. But uh, he goes on to say, Peter Bernstein said, you cannot manage outcomes, you can only manage risk. In other words, we can't imagine what could lead to a big loss and how big big a loss it might actually be. But if we just have a simple rule, such as a stop loss at 5% down, then those questions don't matter. Well, I think it's... uh, we can, we can do even more than that. Obviously, c- keeping the losses small, not over-trading with too much leverage, not over-trading the sectors or markets and being truly as diversified as possible. Having some shorts on. I'm always big on these shorts. Uh, longs and shorts at the same time mitigate risk with in a trend following systematic trading without any sacrifice to profits. I think that is uh, left out sometimes. but we. All of, all of the things we try to do, it's difficult when you put together a trend-following system and a program, it's really difficult to sort of figure out where the profit-making starts and stops and the risk control and risk management, uh, it's just all intertwined together. We're, we're doing both at the same time, all the time. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the most important things is to follow the prices and it's totally erroneous to believe that any one market or sector is superior or better trender or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that kind of reminds me of um, of another uh, of my previous conversations. It, it kind of ties in a little bit. A lot of people um, think about sort of asset allocation as a separate topic within investments and, and, and strategies and all of that. And, of course, I guess someone like a... Um, uh, Ray Dalio, uh, I think, uh, you know, puts a lot of emphasis, uh, from, you know, from his success onto the overall asset allocation, et cetera, et cetera. But, but then I was re-listening actually to, um, had a long drive, uh, uh a couple of days ago and I was re-listening to my conversation with the founders of AHL, uh, so Adam Harding and, and Lurik, and, um and we talked about asset allocation and 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 of course what they were saying is that well you know asset allocation is is built into what we do that it, it's not a separate issue it's it's built into how our models how our systems work we we allocate according to to the opportunities and 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 so um and so i think that's another uh thing that's important to uh to realize that that you have that benefit uh as well we we often talk about just you know but, you know, buys and sales and exits and et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, being so diversified as, as, as the three of us are, I mean, the whole asset allocation is, is built into um, our portfolios, uh, which is incredibly powerful.
3: Uh, That's the thing. And it's, you know, it's so important. Uh, you know, let me give an example. I think, you know, when we had this attack on this refinery, in Saudi Arabia, that oil refinery, oil production facility, not a refinery, or maybe also refinery, but some production facility. And, and we had crude oil, uh, you know, doing the largest gap, I think, in the history of the futures market, right? Um, if you are short that market at that point in time, and uh, you have a stop on, you know, that stop is, you know, you don't get you don't get filled at that stop level. You get filled at where the market's going to open, right? So you can have a larger loss than what you think you should have had uh, based on your stop. And it shows again that it's so important. Like Jerry was saying, we have longs and shorts on in so many different markets that even though this may happen, and you know this may happen also in other markets, it's not going to uh, kill you, right? It's not going to you know destroy your system, and. Like, you know, coming back to Larry, I think his rule number one, I haven't read his book yet. I'm looking forward to receiving it. But um, I think he says rule number one is cut your losers short and stay in the game. Um, Of course, if you can keep the losers small as well, that's even more important. But this is, I think, the true rule number one is to, you know, manage your risk in that way that you always get out of your losers and put the money back into the winners and into the other
1: rockets. Yeah, good stuff. Um, We have a couple of questions or topics we can talk about today. The first one, and I appreciate because I think we took a question last week from this gentleman, and I was not sure how to pronounce his name, so uh, I appreciate you uh, helping me out this week. Um, by um, in your question also saying that I can pronounce your name uh, Gaetano. so I will do that. Thanks very much for, for that, Gaetano. And you uh, you have a follow-up question and that is since volatility is not only a measure of uncertainty but also an investment asset like the VIX uh, futures, is it reasonable to apply a trend following strategy on it? would love to hear your views uh, on that, Uh, Moritz. I don't even know if you trade the VIX, but um, is the VIX something you can trade as a trend follower in your experience?
3: Um, I don't trade the VIX in my trend following system. Um, I'm not sure about volatility being uncertainty. uh, I think about a week or two ago, Mark Ratoszymski had a great article about on this or blog article on LinkedIn on the differences between vol and uncertainty. Uh, maybe worth reading that one. But no, I, I do not trade the VIX from um, a trend following perspective uh, because that market volatility is mean reverting. Uh, um some way say by definition that, you know, periods of higher volatility are followed by periods of lower volatility and that volatility has a natural bound at zero and it cannot go to infinity. So it will kind of like oscillate between, you know, kind of like those boundaries. Um I, I'm not sure if this by definition true, but, you know, statistically the market is mean reverting. That is what I can observe when I look at the market and, and you know, volatility in and by itself. So. I don't think it's a market that's really um, great for a trend-following system. And, uh, and you know, some people may want to trade a mean reversion system on it. Some people may, you know, trade a short-only system on it. All of that stuff exists. I don't do it. Um, I'm intrigued by the market, but I'm not trading it in a trend-following style.
2: Any thoughts, Jerry? No, I agree with all of that. I've looked at it, uh, the discount between the future VIX and the cash VIX, probably something there. I think uh, maybe trading the VIX is not the same to everyone as trading volatility. i throw that out. I don't really know, but uh, maybe there's other ways that are better or more trend-following friendly. Uh, I think focusing on the VIX, uh, which I have people focus on it for me sometimes, clients. When are you going to integrate VIX into your trading? is, once again, uh, to be kind of like avoided in a sense that it seems to be more stock-centric. The world revolves around stocks. It's the only thing out there worth paying attention to. Uh, To the degree that you fit in and you can help me with my stocks, uh, then that's how I'll deem your worthiness uh, and how you uh, offer value on this planet, which I reject all of those ideas. So. I think the best crisis alpha and the best way people could help their stocks is not worrying about VIX or trading VIX, but letting a trend follower trade your stocks with trend following. Uh, the eighty percent of your portfolio that uh, you have in stocks, it should be you should use trend following for that. And uh, if you really want to uh, help with some sort of uh, crisis.
1: Yeah, and I concur with all of that. Uh, being said, I don't. I actually don't think you really can, unless you maybe you were super short term. Maybe you could devise something to. Uh, but I wouldn't even call it uh, trend following. Uh, we do have on our side some experience with the VIX, um, but not in a trend following fashion. Uh, it's an area of interest to us uh, for sure, and we've been you know, having a small allocation to the VIX uh, for the last uh, three and a half years or so, but again, not as a trend-following approach. Um, so, um, yeah, so I hope that gives you um, some uh, answers. Um, and then finally, just a topic uh, that we could uh, talk about. It comes up from time to time, but since we don't have any other questions today specifically um uh, maybe um, sort of this whole uh, debate about whether trend followers can make money in in rising interest rate environments uh, obviously we're hoovering around very low levels of interest rates at some point i guess it's safe to say that we're going to have a rising interest rate environment we just don't know when that's going to happen but it will and um so the question is since most trend following Live track records, with very few exceptions, has been, you know, in the last thirty years uh, or so, thirty-five, uh, even, uh, and therefore they have enjoyed uh, the um, kind of the benefit that the uh, falling interest rates have had uh, in terms of uh, bonds and and their kind of rise uh, in price. Uh, and since it's a big, um, there are a lot of bond markets you can trade. Uh, of course, the criticism of trend following is often that it relies too heavily uh, on on returns from fixed income. So, um, I mean, I can say from our side, we we actually traded back in the seventies, uh, and therefore we we did trade through. Uh, I think it was seventy six through eighty one, in particular, where interest rates rose a lot. And if I go back and look at our track record back then, it was an incredibly profitable uh, time for for Don. Um, that's not to say that that yeah, things would happen in the same way. We we don't know about future returns, of course. Let me put that in. But um, but at least there, there's some real um, returns, uh, you know, that that we can point at at least. Um, but what are your thoughts? Do you come across this debate uh, as well, or, or what are your thoughts about? Uh, trend followers relying too much on on interest rates as a source of return um is it something we should even be discussing
3: well first up i don't think i'm relying too much on interest rates for my returns i give interest rates the same opportunity in the portfolio as other markets
1: but do you have more markets though from that fixed income sector relative to other sectors i guess that's what i meant if i didn't make Mm. that clear uh
3: there, there, there may be more markets, but I do, you know, make adjustments for correlation. Okay. As we, as we have said before. Okay. Um, so if I'm trading, the bauble and the bond, uh, then I know those, you know, two markets tend to move in tandem. So, you know, I kind of like put them in the same bucket. So sure. I, I, you know, really, I can, I really want to say that in in my portfolio, very objectively looked at. Interest rates or fixed income markets do not have the front row seed uh, compared to any of the other markets. I really try to give them the same opportunity to add volatility and risk and PL to the system as any other market. There's no preferential treatment there. Now, um, I'm, uh, I'm lucky to say I'm too young. I've never traded into a rising interest rate environment. So the only thing I can say is when I backtest my system, I can look at how did it perform... Uh, based on today's rules, and based on the parameters that I'm using today, how would that have performed, for instance, uh, in in the 80s, right? Or other periods of rising interest rates and and, and higher inflation. And um, it, it has worked. You know, it it may not have worked as well, but it has worked. So I cannot say that um, I'd be afraid of a rising interest rate environment. You know, and maybe maybe because we're then short that market, there's a little less carry that we'll make from the market. But it also depends on, you know, is that carry going to be there? I mean, which shape does the yield curve have at that point in time? None of us knows that. And then also, I think some people tend to overcomplicate the matter. I mean, the price of the forward rate is baked into the futures contract already. Um, you know, it's it's already in that price. So. If if interest rates are rising, um, I'll you know just just short the bonds and and you know try to follow that trend. So I I, I don't want to overcomplicate those type of things. You know I'll just I'll, I'll be equally fine trading it on the short side uh, as I am trading it on the long side. Maybe our judgment is clouded by the fact that trading it from the long side for so many years now has produced spectacular results.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear your your opinion, uh, Jerry. But I will say that I've certainly heard this argument in the last few years um, from some of the uh, not not necessarily the usual uh, short-term managers, but there was definitely some short-term managers a few years back when the first time the interest rates in the U.S. Um, came to these levels um, and um, and made made a big um splash about this and and so on and so forth and that didn't uh hold hold true um but but i agree with you uh moritz i mean there's no uh there's no evidence as far as i can tell that that trend following strategies won't uh be equally profitable uh during an interest rate rising environment um so what are your thoughts jerry
2: well i do think it's problematic to have a large bond position and uh in a large energy position or a large grain position without regard to uh it might be more or less one or two trades there and <clears throat> and uh, so I do think not over trading in general, not over trading the sectors or the those sectors I just mentioned is uh something that CTA should not do. I think uh I agree with it. If that's part of it, I hear this a lot, but I don't hear a lot of specific uh, complaints. Exactly what they're talking about, and because I was sort of thinking something else when you originally asked the question. But I do think those are issues. Uh, take advantage of the if you don't if you trade the bonds too large, if you trade the stocks too large, or energy too large. You know, crude, heating oil, unleaded, Brent, gas oil, all of those. As if uh, then you overwhelm. Uh, the other markets that are uniquely not co- correlated to anything, uh, palladium, cotton, coffee, cocoa, sugar, cattle, hogs, emissions, oil, bean oil, canola, etc., etc.—so So there is a Bitcoin. So you've destroyed all of that diversification. You've minimized the benefits of all those other markets by saying, I got on eight grain positions or 14 bond positions. It doesn't make sense. And I think that is a problem. I know I did it. I might still be guilty of doing it a little bit, Uh, but on another subject, I would say that uh, guilty is charged. You know, um, if if I could just re restate it, which is that CTAs make all this money when one group of markets or one sector goes up a lot. Yeah, of course. That's what we do. We play for those outlier, that fat tail. So we should be making a ton of money on the sectors and the markets that are the best trending markets. We should have made more money in stocks probably, get away from those indices and trade the individual names. Uh, But certainly in the bonds, uh, they've done well. It's been a bull market for many, many years. And we crushed it, <clears throat> and because we trade all of the other markets uh, in e- relatively equal proportions and we use uh, trend-following systems on those as well, if markets that haven't done well the past 20 or 30 years start doing really well, having big trends up or down, those markets going to dominate our performance as well, and so that is uh, the nature of what we do. Um, when there's crazy moves that nobody could predict and they go a long, long ways over multiple years, yeah, it's going to dominate our performance. Guilty. But that's the way you make money in the markets.
1: I think that's a great point, actually. And I think it was uh, someone like maybe... John Templeton or something like someone like that who who once said that you know in order to make superior returns you have to have conviction and I think that's exactly what you 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 uh, talk about there Jerry that yes I mean our systems build up this conviction from the uh, signal strength and if that signal strength just happens to be in one sector well then let. That's perfectly fine. I mean, we'll go with it until there's no conviction in that sector anymore. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we'll shift our asset allocation to the next sector that shows conviction. And that is that. Yet most a lot of people want to criticize the fact that we, we dare have conviction. You know, uh, We don't want to be average. We don't want to spread our risk so thin that we can never make money above some kind of risk-free rate of return. So, uh, yeah, I think that that's a great way of... T- describing
2: it yeah it reminds me of a little bit of uh, what's going on in american baseball and uh it's just a crazy change over the past few years where there are more home runs hit you know uh than ever and more strikeouts so uh, (laughs) this philosophy of uh not you know your average trade being dominated by big huge moves is uh it's it's uncomfortable for people, you know. Why can't we just like score a couple of runs every inning and be more consistent and more f- even and flow? Why does it have to be these uh, shocks and these uh, small losses on a month monthly basis? Then all of a sudden you make tons of money or you score lots of runs and it just doesn't sit as well with us. We want to be told life can be corralled and be more calm. And I'll show you how to uh, have less stress. And uh, the markets are like, nope, if you want to make money, maximum stress. And of course, we shouldn't forget that when you talk about equities, it's perfectly
1: fine that all the returns in the S&P came from seven stocks or f- the fang stocks or whatever. That, that's not a problem that, you know, that they were the return drivers, right? So if you didn't have them, you didn't make any money. But as soon as it's something like, ooh, CTA is making a lot of money from bond this year, that's a problem. Don't like that.
2: Great, Great point. Great point. Because it may not happen again, you can't rely upon it. No, that's right. And what we're saying is, we don't even know when our we do our analysis. We cover up the name of the market. It's the bonds today. It'll be commodities the next time, or stocks, or short stocks. And we're just going to do the same approach with all the markets, just following these trends. And we really look at it as uh, we appreciate the diversification and we understand it, and we uh, try to create the portfolios, uh, taking correlation and diversification into, uh, into account. But where the profits come from, we're totally agnostic. We have no prediction. We don't care. Uh, we're just going to follow those trends and be as surprised as everyone else. Yeah. Good stuff, as usual. Thanks so much for sharing
1: those uh, thoughts. Um, maybe while you... Uh, as usual think about anything else to bring up Um, i just want to run through performance uh, through thursday i do believe friday was a bit of a rough day maybe in the uh, trend following space not too bad but it certainly wasn't a positive day so just bear that in mind but um, beta 50 uh, as of thursday night down 1.36 for uh, october up 7.71 for the year SocGen CT index down 1.29 uh, for the month, up 7.2 for the year. SocGen Trend Index wa- down 1.79 for the month, uh, up 11.6 for the year. And the SocGen Short Term Traders Index down 0.33 of a percent, up uh, 1.48. And the Flat Fee Index, Bridge alternatives did not have an update for me as of Thursday night, so I don't want to quote uh, any older. Uh, data, but, you know, in line with our own expectations as we talked about in the beginning of uh, the uh, episode, that it was um, it's been a little bit of a uh, downstart to um, the month of October and the fourth quarter, even though I think anecdotally at least, the fourth quarter sometimes turns up to be quite spectacular, in some years at least, so there's still plenty of time. Anything else um did you want to uh, bring up as we bring it to a close, so to speak? Just like
3: Jerry said, we'll be surprised again. We don't even know what's going to surprise us. There's uh, lots of things probably, you know, with Brexit in the next uh, two or three weeks, and you know, trade war still going on. So all of those surprises will be thrown at us, and we'll just take them as it comes. And I uh, wish everyone a good good week ahead in the markets.
2: Yes, uh, trend follow every second minute hour of the day. always um, I'm always looking to buy higher prices, buy high, sell higher. Mm-hmm. exactly. And even though if
1: we don't know if Brexit will happen on the thirty first of August, or sorry, October this year, we do know that our live event will take place on the twenty sixth and twenty seventh of October in New York, in Manhattan. I think there's one spot left if anyone wants to, uh, meet up with us, uh, and not only us, actually, um, we also have our special guest now, Denise Scholl, uh, famous trading coach, uh, to talk about the mental game and help us all, uh, understand that better. So if you're interested, let us know, um, uh, before we close, uh, the event for new, uh, attendees, um, so, with all of that in mind, um, thanks for listening to this uh, episode of The Systematic Investor. Uh, as always, you can find notes and links uh, at other episodes on toptradersonplot.com. Um, from Jerry, Morris, and me, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful and profitable week ahead.
0: Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show.